Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for John chapter 8 and all that it holds for us. We come uh, dependent upon you. We come uh, with humble hearts and open hands, and we just ask you to teach us. Lord, would you open our eyes and help us to see just the amazing things in your word this morning. Lord Jesus, we look to you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, once again, welcome to FBC and welcome to those of you online. We see you. We love you. We're glad you're tuning in as well. And I want to invite you, uh, whether you're online or here in the room, to join me in John chapter 8, verse 48. That's where we're going to be. So if you need a hard copy Bible, there's one on the seats uh, underneath or in front of you, underneath the seat, or if you want to find it on the Bible app. However you need to get to John 8, verse 48, that's where we're going to be as we continue this sermon series called Come and See, just looking at Jesus little by little through the gospel of John. And we're going to get right into the question of the morning. You saw, as Pastor Ian read, really the main conflict and tension that's driving the passage. Verse 53 ends with the question, who do you think you are? Right? Jesus' opponents, the crowd listening to him that are not buying into what he's saying, Look at Jesus and say, who do you think you are? Who are you claiming to be? Jesus, you're making some pretty big claims, and we're not sure you can back them up. I mean, that really remains a watershed question today, right? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus claiming to be? There was a study done back in 2015 by the Barna Research Group, and they shared some of their findings as they uh, surveyed American adults asking about their opinions about Jesus. And 92% of adults surveyed affirmed that Jesus was a real person, a a true historical figure, not some myth or legend made up. So strong start, all right, American public, 92%, good job believing Jesus existed. Uh, However, that's about where the consensus ended, okay? As the survey went on, they found that Slightly over half of American adults, uh, 56%, believe that Jesus was God himself. Okay, so that's only about half of the American population would say Jesus is God. The other half would say he was just a human being, just a great spiritual teacher, uh, but not God himself. Let's not get carried away. Or they would say, you know, I, I don't really know, can it say either way. Okay, so about one out of two would say he's God. Uh, similarly, about 52% of American adults surveyed uh, believe that Jesus committed sins just like other human beings, okay? Which kind of makes sense, right? If he was just a human being, then he committed sins like other human beings. So uh, 48% of adults would say that Jesus was sinless, as the Bible teaches, but 52% Say, no, Jesus committed sins. He, you know, cheated on his math exam and he egged some houses in his adolescent years, just like the rest of us, and he sinned too. Okay, interesting, right? Well, the American public might be, you know, all over the place about Jesus, but at least we in the church have all our ducks in a row and all agree, right? Not so much. Uh, the same study found, this is, I found this really interesting, that uh, of Christians, who were surveyed. Okay, so this was of people who had made a commitment to Jesus, okay, made a personal commitment to Jesus, identified as a Christian. 
only 63%, again, more than half, but not, not much, 60%. believe that it was through Jesus that they received eternal life. Okay? 63% say, yes, it's through Jesus and my commitment to him that I receive eternal life. The other 37% would say, well, yes, I'm committed to Jesus, but I'm, I'm going to heaven because I'm basically a good person or because, you know, God loves everybody and wouldn't judge anybody or, uh, you know, something along those lines. So only 63% of confessing Christians that it's through Christ and his work alone that I have eternal life. A different study uh, came out last year and found uh, a similar thing that nearly half of professing Christians, it was 42%, which isn't 50, but it's close, 42% of professing, professing Christians believed uh, that God accepts the religions of the world. God accepts the worship of any and every religion. And so they would say, hey, I'm a committed Christian, but 42% of Christians would say, but hey, if you're Jewish, cool. If you practice Islam, no big deal. Or some new age spirituality, cool. God accepts all of it. Jesus, great, but it's, you know, kind of, he's optional. Take it or leave it. Fascinating. Oh, this is Christian survey. So we have all kinds of opinions about Jesus out in the public, even within the church. And so this morning, we're going to look at who does Jesus claim to be? Right? Not just what do we maybe assume about Jesus or things we learned that, uh, growing up that may or may not be true, but let's go and let him in his own words tell us who he is. That's what we see in John chapter 8. You notice uh, again how it, how it kicks off in verse 48. The Jews, that's kind of their first attempt to identify who Jesus is. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Strong start for the crowd there. Um, but for a while now, if you've been with us in John chapter 8, right, you've seen this kind of back and forth between Jesus' teaching and the crowds or the religious leaders of his day kind of pushing back. Um, last week, Jesus told his opponents that they were sons of the devil because they were believing lies and would not receive the truth about him. Okay, and they're basically going schoolyard style, throwing that insult right back at Jesus, right? They're, they're saying, hey, you say that we're sons of the devil, but we're not sons of the devil. You're the one who's demon-possessed. See, they're throwing it back. And not only that, but you're a Samaritan. Isn't it true you're a Samaritan? Those, you know, uh, mixed racial folks across the tracks on the other side there, they're not pure Jews. They, they intermarried with uh, Gentiles, and so we have these impure, unclean Samaritans on the other side of the tracks. Aren't you one of them, Samaritans, and you're demon-possessed? Neither of those things are true, but they throw them at him anyways. And he responds, verse 49, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So notice, in Jesus' response, here and throughout the rest of the chapter, he's going to tell us who he is. And the first thing he tells us is that, well, I am the unique son of the Father. Look at verse 49, he says, I honor my Father. I'm not demon-possessed, I honor my Father. And so my teaching... And my work and my miracles, they're not because I'm 
demon-possessed or crazy or off the reservation, but because I'm obedient to my Father. And what Jesus does here is he really kind of pulls back the veil for us and lets us in on the life of the Trinity. We worship one God, eternally existing, and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has told us about his relationship with his Father. And we've seen things like in chapter 1, Jesus was in the beginning with God, in relationship with the Father. Chapter 5, remember Jesus told us that he only does what he sees his Father doing. In chapter 8 here, he says, I honor my Father. And so as a perfect human, yes, he's fully God, but also fully man. He's showing us what a a right relationship with the Father looks like, to honor and obey the Father. Now further, look at verse 50. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. He'll later clarify, it's, it's the Father who is seeking the Son's glory. The Father delights in exalting and glorifying the Son. This is significant because in the ancient world, self-praise or uh, exaltation of the self was viewed in public uh, very suspiciously. It was not viewed very favorably. And so Jesus is making it clear, hey, I'm not out here claiming glory for myself. I'm not out here... Uh, apart from the Father, if I was just making a big deal about myself, but God the Father was not behind it and in line with it, then it would be pointless. But the Father has sent me. and I honor the Father. And the Father is the one who glorifies me. And it's really important for us to see this relationship at play here because uh, the, the unity of the Father and the Son. Because often what we'll do today is we'll kind of pit them against one another. And we'll think things or say things like, well, God the Father, you know, in the Old Testament especially, is, he's scary right, and judgmental, but Jesus in the New Testament is loving. Or we'll say things like, again, this is at a popular level or even like a scholarly level. People will say, well, well God the Father was just kind of grumpy and wanted to condemn us, but Jesus felt differently about us and wanted to come and convince his Father not to judge us, and instead went to the cross for us. Now, you heard things like that, maybe thought things like that, and not know how to make sense of the relationship between Father and Son. But I want you to see that the unity of the Father and Son and Spirit, the unity of the Trinity in the plan of salvation, Father, Son, and Spirit, with the same heart towards us, same purpose, working together to bring about redemption. And so rather than than Jesus being at odds with his Father, like the Father's not really sure about you, but don't worry guys, I'll calm him down. Uh, Not like that at all. We see that Jesus says, I am here to do the will of my Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. I honor my Father. My Father glorifies me. So you see complete unity in purpose and in redemption. Just a reminder that the next time in our minds or our hearts or we hear someone say, yeah, well, they're really, you know, the Father and the Son are kind of at odds and Jesus isn't anything like God the Father, we'd say, well, that's actually not true. And that's not what Jesus said at all. I honor my Father. Perfectly united in purpose. 
And it goes on. Look at verse 51. It's going to tell us more about who he is. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So not only does Jesus say, hey, I'm the son of the Father, he shows us that he is the way to life. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Though we die physically, we do not fear eternal death. This is language we've seen before again throughout the gospel, right? Think about back to uh, chapter 8. Jesus said to his opponents earlier in chapter 8, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Die in your sins. John 6, when many of the crowds are leaving and he says to his disciples, do you want to leave too? They say, well, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We see earlier in uh, John chapter 5, Jesus says, whoever believes my words and believes has eternal life and will not be judged, but will cross over from death to life. We just see that theme over and over again, death to life through Jesus. And I think really if we were to boil down the gospel message, like really just try and simplify it to its most basic concepts and claims, I think this is what we would find. Jesus claiming that we can be saved and rescued from death. That apart from Jesus, we're we're dead in our sins, worthy of judgment, separation from God, but through Jesus, we can be restored to life, forgiven of our sins. Resurrection life in the name of Jesus, through His life, death, and resurrection, and faith in Him, both now and forever. And so I just really simply want you to see that. If, if, if you're here every week, uh, then this is not a surprise, right? You, you hear this message, the message of the gospel every week. We keep coming back to uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the power that it holds for forgiveness of sin and salvation and new life now and forever. But, but if you're new here, again, maybe you, you have this assumption that you know, church is about uh, just behavior modification, right? And learn to jump through the religious hoops and then the, like, you know, the churchy people will pat you on the back and cheer you on if you do enough good things. But I want you to see that that's, following Jesus is not about just surface-level behavior modification and just come to church and then you know, the, the people there are going to teach you how to clean up your act on your own and then God's going to smile at you if, if you do that and keep the rules a little bit better. Uh, that's not the foundational claim of the gospel. Rather, it's that what? Jesus came to make dead people alive. We need a Savior to resurrect us and forgive us. And by the way, if, you're, uh, if you are a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus for some, some time, but you've never been baptized, let me encourage you to consider taking that step of baptism. Because in baptism, think about the imagery of baptism. You go under the water, symbolizing death, death to your old life, death before Christ, dying to self, and then the pastor holds you underwater a a good while just to scare you a little bit and really make you feel that. And then we bring you up out of the water, which demonstrates visibly a new life, right? Resurrection life in Christ. So baptism visibly shows this process going from death to life through faith in Jesus. And so if you have not been baptized, 
I encourage you to take that step. I'm not saying that baptism and that act itself is what saves you. You're saved through faith in Christ. But baptism is this visible representation of that transformation. And so if you have put your faith in Jesus, but have not been baptized, uh, Jesus makes it pretty clear, disciples are to be baptized. So if we're not taking that step, uh, we need to talk about that. And so I'd love to talk with you about that, and we're hoping to have a baptism service coming up here this fall. So we'd love to talk with you more there. Okay, so Jesus explains himself. Say, no, I don't have a demon. He tells us about his relationship with his father, that he came to give us life. And they're like, wow, thank you for clearing that up, Jesus. Sounds great. We believe you. Just kidding. Look how it continues. Okay, verse 52. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets that you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? There's that question. Who, who are you making yourself out to be, Jesus? Now we know you're demon-possessed. We thought it before, but now we are convinced because you're claiming to be something that clearly is not true, to be able to keep people from death. I mean, think about Abraham. Back in the book of Genesis, the great patriarch of the faith, the father of the Jewish nation, he died, and the prophets in the Old Testament died. But, oh, Jesus, you say that you have the way to life? You think you're greater than Abraham and greater than the prophets? I mean, who exactly are you claiming to be? Jesus responds, verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So, notice a few things here. First, Jesus kind of repeats what he was saying before, right? Hey, I'm not out here making stuff up on my own, seeking glory for myself. My Father, the one that you claim to know, He's the one who glorifies me. Not only that, but I, I know Him. Relational language. I, I know Him and I obey Him. Again, He's pointing to this unparalleled relationship that He has with His Father. And then, verse 56 Notice what he does. He says, your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, on the surface, that sentence might not look like it means a whole lot. Right? Or maybe you're not entirely sure the significance of this reference. But think about it. Look at what he's saying. He's pointing back to Abraham, back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abraham and he believed God and he left his home to travel to a distant land and he trusted God. And he became the father of this nation, of the Jewish people. So that Abraham, Jesus says, he saw me, or he saw my day and was glad. What does he mean? Well, again, in Jewish tradition, many believe that, that Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, way back in the book of Genesis was given somehow by God this prophetic insight to look forward, to look and see uh, the coming Messiah one day, to have this, this glimpse of what God was going to do one day. 
And some commentators will try and kind of pinpoint that to an event like Genesis 22, where Abraham goes to sacrifice his son, but instead, uh, what, a, a sacrifice is provided by the Lord. So Isaac is spared while the lamb or the ram goes to its death in sacrifice. And so many would say, well, that's kind of this moment where Abraham got this picture of salvation and rescue that God would work one day for his people. Uh, others would say, no, this is more of a general reference, that, that somehow Abraham, aided by God uh, at maybe various points in his life, was able to see the day the Messiah would come and rescue God's people. He had this, this, this sense, this vision that God gave him of a Savior to come. Now, that concept alone for the Jews, wouldn't it be scandalous? Again, it was widely believed that that was true. Okay, Abraham saw something during his lifetime to, to foreshadow what, Jesus, what God was going to do through Jesus and bring about salvation. But the claim that Jesus makes, notice, is, is bigger than that. Because what does he say? He says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. You see the connection? The implication? I'm the one Abraham saw. Or I'm the one that Abraham was looking forward to. I'm the one that, that Abraham's somehow prophetic vision or insight about the future pointed to. I'm the fulfillment of the hopes of Abraham and his joy and the promises of the Old Testament. And so not only is Jesus claiming to be the unique son of the Father, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one Abraham saw. I'm the one the Old Testament was pointing forward to, the rescuer. Again, just notice here the great unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So often as we read through the New Testament, it's pointing back to the Old Testament. Saying there are these promises, these, these images, these symbols, these hopes, these words given by God, these events, and they all pointed forward to Jesus. He fulfilled them. We see this connection over and over again in the Scriptures. So this time the Jews said, wow, Abraham saw your day. You're, you're the one. We get it now. We're in. We believe you. Not quite. Look at this, verse 57. They heard that. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? That was a cute little reference you made, Jesus, but uh, you're not even 50 years old. So... Obviously, that can't be true. Clearly, you weren't around when Abraham was around. Generations and generations and generations ago. So the crowd's trying to make him look silly, right? You're claiming that Abraham saw you and you saw him. I mean, no way. Not only are you too young to have seen Abraham, right? This is just simple math here, people. Uh, you're also too young to be out here making the sort of claims and uh, public teaching that you're doing. You're making yourself out to be some rabbi. See, uh, 50, the age of 50, was a minimum requirement for some public teaching offices, some public service offices in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world. And so, um, they're saying basically, slow your roll, young fella, okay? You're not even old enough to weigh in on important theological matters. And if that were still the case, if 50 was the requirement, then none of your pastoral staff here would be qualified. We'd be in trouble, people. Uh, but here we are. So they're saying, calm down, young fella. Why don't you leave the heavy lifting to the pros, to the elders of the community, to uh, 
Um, those in charge here, perhaps the audience was irritated by Jesus' authoritative claims and his relative youth. They're trying to put him in his place. Notice how Jesus responds, verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you probably remember what Jesus is getting at here, the significance of this statement. If uh, you are not familiar with this passage, maybe you read it and you're thinking, this sounds a little bit funny. You know, I mean, before Abraham was born, I am. I mean, that's not even grammatically correct, Jesus. So what's, what exactly are you getting at here? Uh, so think about the trajectory. They're saying, you're not even 50 years old, Jesus. What do you mean you've seen Abraham? He says, oh, oh, I've been around uh, way longer than Abraham. He's saying, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, he could have said, before Abraham was born, I was. Before Abraham was, I was. You know, I existed before Abraham. And that in itself uh, would be a staggering claim. But that's not what he says. He's saying more. If you go back to the book of Exodus, and maybe if you've read the book of Exodus, or you've watched the movie The Prince of Egypt, and you remember uh, the story, right, of the people of God in slavery in Egypt. And God comes and leads them out and confronts Pharaoh through Moses and parts the Red Sea and they cross out to dry land and, or through dry land into the promised land eventually and so on. If you go back to that story, you might remember in Exodus chapter 3, uh, this famous encounter between Moses living outside of the land of Egypt confronts what? A, a burning bush. God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. And he calls Moses to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and right, lead the people to free, you know, let my people go. And we're going to cross the Red Sea and do all the rest. And, and Moses eventually, though he's a little um, hesitant at first, eventually says, okay, I'll go. But when I go, people are going to ask who it is that sent me, right? So if I go back to the Jews and say, hey, you know, I'm here to lead you out. Or if I go confront Pharaoh and say, hey, you know, I'm leading the Jewish people out, they're going to want to know who you are, who it is that is sending me. What's your name? What should I tell them? Remember what God says to him? You can tell them, I am who I am. I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. I am the God who is, basically. I am the living one. Tell them, I am has sent me. That's how God discloses his name. And it's from that scene, that, that uh, event, that we get the name Yahweh. That's why as we sing about Yahweh, we see that in the Hebrew Scriptures as the, the name God gives for who he is. From I am. Now, when the Old Testament translated, um, or was translated from Hebrew, into Greek, which uh, much of the first century world here in the time of Jesus was, they were reading the Old Testament in Greek. And so when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, this statement, the I am, read ego eimi. It's Greek for I am, emphatically, I am. Ego eimi. It has nothing to do with waffles. It's a very important Greek 
position. And the, the Greek here in John chapter 8 is the same Greek that we find way back in Exodus 3, where God says, I am. So Jesus is taking the divine name, essentially, and saying, that's who I am. This is one of the clearest uh, statements of deity for Christ that we find in the New Testament. Think about what he's saying. I am the God who spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. That's me. I am. I'm the God of Exodus 3. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the creator God. I'm the sustainer. I'm the God of Israel. I'm the king of the universe. That's me. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. If you have any doubt that that's what Jesus was saying, look at the reaction of the crowd in verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Stoning someone was the penalty for blasphemy. So the crowd knows exactly what he's doing. They knew the reference. They knew who he was claiming to be. This guy is claiming to be God himself. So Jesus is the unique son of the Father. He is the way to life. He is the Messiah that Abraham saw in the Old Testament pointed forward to. And he is God himself. Friends, this, it all comes down to this. What do we say about Jesus? This is the, this is the watershed issue. This is the dividing line. Because those who, who practice Islam, for example, will, will look at Jesus and say, hey, he said some great things. He was a great prophet. But he's not God himself. Or uh, those who follow Mormonism will say that, that Jesus was a created being, created by the Father, who eventually you know, grew into his deified status. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus is created and reached deity, but, but similarly, again, he's, he's a lesser God. Or many today, again, just, just out in, in public, our neighbors, or maybe some of us have wondered this as well, was Jesus just a great human teacher? And he will say, Jesus never claimed to be divine. That's something that we like thought up later. But look at the words of Jesus. Who does he claim to be? Let's take him at his word. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. I am the living God. I am the God of Exodus 3. I am the one who is in the beginning. I am the uncreated one, the sovereign king of the universe. then we have to decide how we will respond to this claim of Jesus. Will we believe that He is who He says He is? And not only that, but then will we obey Him? See, this isn't meant to be just so that we pass a theology test, you know, so that if we were you know, handed a, a pen and paper and it said, you know, is Jesus God? And we could check the box, yes, and be like, crushed it, right on. Um, you know, that's a good thing. We, we need to know what is true about Jesus and who he's claiming to be, but that's not where it stops. The point isn't that this would just remain in the realm of some abstract you know, theology quiz we could pass. Because even demons have good theology, right? And know the truth. And so it's about more than that. It's also about obedience, about surrender, about worship. It's about who is the authority in our life. 
living under the reign of Jesus as king, as God. It's about learning to obey him in all of life. Not just that we mentally assent to a a theological proposition, it is that, but then that we then obey Jesus, the King. We say, you know what, Jesus, I don't necessarily want to naturally, but I know you call me to love my neighbor, to sacrifice for the good of my neighbors, to love even my enemies. So I don't necessarily want to, but you, you told me to do that, and so Lord, teach me, help me to do that. I want to obey. So, you know, I'm really prone to um, selfishness, and I don't particularly want to serve my spouse, especially you know when it's five in the morning and the baby's crying, and that's maybe from my life, maybe not. You don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I want to, but Lord, you tell me to to lay down my life for the good of my spouse, to love and serve my spouse, and so, Lord, I'm going to try and do that. Help me to do that. Help me live in your your way. Lord, help, help me to have integrity at work. Help me to be a, a gracious person. Help me to build others up with my words rather than tear them down. Help me to show hospitality and, and generosity because of the hospitality and generosity and graciousness that you have shown me. Help me to treat people, Lord, the way you want me to treat people. Help me to, to work for, for peace in our neighborhoods and justice in our land and Care for the vulnerable. Jesus, help me walk in your ways. And for all of us, wherever you, whatever background you're coming from, there's going to be places where your assumptions, your upbringing, your initial convictions about the good life and how to live are going to be confronted by the Word of God, by King Jesus. And you're going to have a choice to make. Will I obey Jesus? as King and Lord? Or will I seek to do things my own way? And you see again how the passage ends, verse 59. It says, they picked up stones to stone him. So throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen strong reactions to Jesus, right? Some believe, some follow, some come to him and are healed, and, and other people walk away or just want to get rid of him, or like here, want to stone him and kill him because his claims were so offensive to them. And so it's almost as if over and over again, the author of the Gospel of John brings these events from the life of Jesus up as if to say, you see how the crowd is responding, but what about you? This is a watershed moment. What, what about you? Will, will you pick up your stone to cast at him? Or will you lay down your life and surrender to him as God. Lord Jesus, we confess that we often have believed things about you that are not true. Not only that, but we have uh, rebelled against you, and we have not obeyed you, and we've wanted to be our own Lord and Savior and King. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us uh, repent, help us believe what is true about you, that you are are God himself. You are the Savior. You are the King. You are the risen one. 
It's in your name and in your name alone that we can find life and forgiveness for sins. And we need you desperately. So Lord Jesus, would you help us to obey you? Teach us your ways. And thank you, Lord, that you come to us and, and you, you are so good. And you call us to obey uh, not just out of some power trip that you have because you need to feel a certain way, not that at all, but that you know what is best for us and you love us and you're for us. And you want us to flourish in life. So help us believe that your ways are best. And follow you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Break me apart, I need 